You're listening to the Transport for the North podcast. Hello and welcome to the Transport for the North podcast. Today we're discussing two recent events held by Transport for the North. So our board meeting, which took place on the 11th of June, and the launch of our webinar series, TFN Talks, the following day on the 12th of June. So we're going to have a chat through some of those recent events today. First of all, um, Transport for the North Board, like I say, met on 11th of June. A lot of hot topics discussed there, including Northern Powerhouse Rail, rail operations, really key at the moment amid post-COVID activity and and looking to to recovery as well. Also, we talked about roads investment um, and future recovery as well. So economic recovery plan, which we will touch on a little bit more at the end as well. You can watch back our board meeting in full if you're so inclined. You'll find the link on the meetings page of our website, transportforthenorth.com. But we'll present to you some of the highlights just now as well. And now welcome to to this uh, session, Beth Farhat from the TUC. And Beth, would you like to give a perspective from the TUC on how you think things are going and any issues you wish the board to be aware of? Yeah, no problem. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm the Regional Secretary for the Northern TUC. Very pleased to be uh, joining the Partnership Board. Uh, I was also asked to say a few words about who we are uh, to benefit some some colleagues on the board. So, of course... The TUC has been around for over 150 years, um, and I guess the TUC and the, the unions we represent have been the voice of working people on a range of issues um, over the years, economic issues, but issues specific to the workplace. So I could say a lot more about the economy in the world of work, but I'm here, of course, to talk about transport, uh, and I'll start by saying that while we have seen a massive increase in passenger footfall, the expectation is that, you know, during the second half of June, July, uh, where unions and network rail are starting to talk about increasing um, network services, I think it's going to be, you know, really important that we prioritise things like uh, longer trains, especially in peak hours, because we know that the intelligence has shown that people are still travelling and commuting during these periods. Um, on passenger numbers, it's critical that there is, um, I guess, a, an intelligence system of monitoring and managing passenger footfall. And I guess that the, the, the data can be as live as possible um, so that trade unions and unions and service providers um, can agree what actions uh, need to be taken to make sure if passenger footfall reaches levels, for example, that social distancing and safe working is going to become a challenge, you know, what mechanisms can be put in, tra- in place to challenge that or change that? So, you know, we are all for government guidance around maintaining the two-metre separation. Of course, all employees have uh, a key role in facilitating and acting as ambassadors for social distancing principles, um, again, with a responsibility on the employer and operators to make sure that there's the relevant information, advice, signage, posters, announcements, control measures put in place to make sure that the safe flow of passengers and and, and workers are kept safe. I think there's questions, though, around um, how this will be maintained in, uh, you know, where, where there are unstaffed stations, for example. Just on face masks quickly, um, we 
welcome the principle. Obviously, people will feel safer to commute and workers will, will feel safer if we have face coverings. Um, there is some concern and confusion, though, around um, you know, these arrangements and how they will apply. Um, we're not clear exactly which groups are exempt from the new regulations and how staff will be ex- uh, expected to distinguish between genuine cases. So, for example, those passengers who have genuine respiratory problems so there's a lot of questions, I guess, that that um, that around monitoring that working with unions and the transport sector need to kind of have some discussions around how they're going to bring in necessary guidance to manage these arrangements. And finally, I just want to touch on volunteering. So we understand that the contract between the DFT and the volunteering charity volunteering matters is to recruit unspecified numbers of volunteers to perform roles in railway stations. I mean, this hasn't been discussed with unions, and I'm keen to stress that actually there is a need for agreement here and an open discussion on the issue. Um, I think these these roles are going to be called transport guard angels. Um, There is some anxiety around if these roles are going to be I don't know, providing safety critical tasks or roles, which could include tasks like supporting passenger flow, access and egress out of stations and guiding passengers through new designated socially distance safe pathways and managing congestion um, through busier hubs. And I think, you know, real unions, you know, oppose the use of unpaid volunteers. And there's a school of thought around there is a large number of healthy and well staff who've been stood down that could perhaps have a conversation with them first about taking on tasks before talking to volunteers. So there's been no meaningful consultation or engagement with with unions on this, and it's been left to local organisers to follow up locally. Thank you, Beth. That's a a really helpful contribution. You've raised some very pertinent issues, which I'm sure we'll want to come back to. Could I now ask David Seinbottom from Transport Focus to give us a passenger angle? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, John, and thank you uh, again to the board for uh, inviting Transport Focus to to speak today and to be part of the board in the future. I mean, just very very quickly, Transport Focus those are less familiar with our work with a statutory uh, transport user watchdog um, created by Parliament to promote the interests of transport users. That's passengers, bus, coach, and tram passengers uh, in England outside of London, and also for those that rely on the strategic road network and the major A road networks as well. Um, what we try to do is be useful, provide an evidence base, which is absolutely rooted in consumer research. So for transport users, that's very much about speaking to those people who use transport, who find very barriers to using transport as well. And particularly thinking about this these past three months, I guess the exam question set in David Hogarth's paper is looking at the past three months and the, and the immediate uh, future. The next bit in this, of course, is people have been returning to using the railway and, and other forms of public transport. And I guess the best way I can summarise this is that everything we've ever done with bus, understanding bus passengers' needs, rail passengers' needs, has been very much grounded in trust and confidence. And a slight undermining of that, not because of the core essentials of delivering a punctual reliable service, it's been driven by that unknown factor now around safety and safety's broader sense of health and safety. And I think certainly what we've understood from passengers is that concern about what can I expect when I start using that, that train again and actually what's expected of me. I don't want to be that person that does the wrong thing in the wrong place. So reassurance and communication and confidence in using transport has been absolutely key. We've been tracking the views of around 2,000 people in Britain over the past six, seven weeks. 
asking various questions around what levels of reassurance they need. And certainly the, the, the key factors that have, have shown some interesting variations over the weeks have been attitudes towards face coverings. And certainly last week after the announcement by the Secretary of State, we've seen an increase now in people saying that they will feel much more reassured. But it has been pretty high anyway. It's been around about 60 percent of people saying they would only use public transport if other passengers were uh, wearing a face covering. What's, what has been consistently strong, there was the issue about social distancing and around 70 percent of passengers say there's people saying that they would only use public transport if safe social distancing was in place which is clearly a difficult thing for public transport, let's be honest. Uh, social distancing and public transport don't always go hand in hand with fairly capacity, so that's a challenge ahead as well. And I think thinking about that level of reassurance and communication, what we did, we went to the all-train operating companies, including Transpennine and Northern, a couple of weeks ago with a series of asks on behalf of passengers, thinking about the information they're providing on websites, information coming out through other outlets as well, and sort of setting some exam questions about the level of reassurance that they, they believe they're offering through websites. We worked a couple of times, but again, I'm very pleased to say that both Transpennine Express and Northern listened to what we said. They made um, improvements to their websites to give what we believe is good, clear advice and clear that needs to be kept on top of. Right. Um, item five, then, is the economic recovery plan. This item is about uh, accelerating investment uh, bringing forward investment in electric charging, accelerating maintenance, promoting investment in active travel. Um, I'm going to throw it open now for a short session of questions, if anybody would like to contribute. Andy Burnham. Thanks. Thank you, Chair. Um, investment should be um, made to support the integration of transport at a local level, particularly to city region level. We currently have, a, and this relates to the challenges of COVID-19 and the recovery of the transport system, we currently have a situation where we have a direct deal uh, from the government to support Metrolink, um, but the bus industry is separately, directly being funded uh, by, uh, by the DFT. Now, I don't think that arrangement allows you to, to get the best out of the capacity and to integrate uh, services. Uh, and I think we should be moving to a situation where city regions have integrated funding so that we can begin to, to work towards this uh, aim that we all have of a London-style uh, public transport system. So could one of the principles be routing funding via city regions uh, for uh, bus, light rail, um, so that we can begin to integrate uh, and, and begin the, the public service, uh, sorry, the public transport reform that, that many of us are seeking uh, seeking to do, and it would be helpful if TFN could support us in making that argument to the department. Government. Thank you. Thank you. I'm just going to check if Heather Scott from Teesside is on the line. Uh, just really to comment on paragraph 410, good cross-section of schemes that have been put forward there for quick wins, just particularly to uh, say I'm very pleased to see the River Tees Crossing, Darlington Station and Middlesbrough Station. And we've had some, thank you for your support in all of that, we've had some positive responses both for Middlesbrough Station and Darlington Station and hopefully the Tees Crossing will be the next one. So thank you very much for your support. Well, that's very good to hear, Heather. Thank you for those comments. So we've, we've heard from the 
the board meeting last week. And the following day, uh, we held our first TFN Talks webinar. That was um, a really great discussion. The first one was all about strategic rail and about getting the North back on track. So a really key topic at the moment. It was hosted by Andy Bounds, who some of you may know. He's the North of England correspondent at the Financial Times. And on our panel were Andrew Jones, who's the MP for Harrogate and Knaresborough, Councillor Judith Blake, leader of Leeds City Council and member of West Yorkshire Combined Authority, David Sidebottom from Transport Focus, the passenger group, Maggie Simpson, Director General at the Rail Freight Group, and our very own David Hogarth, Strategic Rail Director here at Transport for the North. So I'm Andy Bounds, I'm the Financial Times North of England correspondent and enterprise editor. So I've covered um, TFN uh, since it was a gleam in uh, George Osborne's eye, I guess, um, many, many years ago. Uh, and um, I think it's fair to say that it's become a, a great sort of um, sounding board for Northern opinion. Um, it's probably one of the few bodies where plenty of Northern leaders and civil servants and so on get around the same table. Um, and can thrash out their differences and their interests and um, sort of unite around a, a particular programme. So we're very fortunate to have a distinguished panel, um, particularly to have the, uh, the double act of Jones and Blake, um, who of course penned a, penned a rail review, uh, which is now I think the Harris Blake review, I'm afraid to say, Andrew, but um, with a new rail minister in place. But, uh, you know, another example of um, local politicians being given uh, the clout to, um, to work on solutions to issues uh, jointly. I guess I just wanted to get into this sort of quick wins versus long term uh, question, which, which, which was one of the questions that came in. Obviously, we need an immediate, you know, economic stimulus of some sort. Um, and I'll, I'll start with Andrew Jones, but obviously put your hands up if you want to contribute. As Andrew's been in the Treasury as well, he knows presumably why some of these things are still sitting on desks. Um, do you think that there's a lot of love out there on, on the comments for reopening rail lines? I mean, where should our priorities be in terms of stimulus? Should it be sort of reinvesting in the big projects we've already got on the go, like TransPennine? Uh, or should it be kickstarting some of these, um, you know, in, in new reopenings? I think it should be both, Andy, is the answer. I don't think we should make a choice. I, don't, I think it is a false choice. Our country has underinvested in infrastructure for decades, and we need some big schemes that are the step change in the capacity that we will need in the future. That does not mean, to, so that things like uh, Northern Powerhouse Rail, HS2. But we also must recognize that we have travel into cities and between cities, not just the big schemes, and we have underinvested in this area comprehensively. So I, I think we need both, but we won't be able to do everything all at once, which was really my point about prioritizing. I've been looking at the, uh, the, the chat and there's a lot of, what about this line? What about that line? What about this station or that station? It will simply not be possible to do everything all at once. We have to be clear what the priorities will be. Uh, my personal priority for my area, for example, I'm Harrogate and Esbury, this is, I'm speaking from Harrogate now, is uh, the Skipton Cone line, which I think will have a really good impact in uh, East Lancashire, an impact uh, which will benefit also into West Yorkshire. But we won't be able to do every single thing. So I think clarity, but not uh, one against the other. It is both. Um, 
I mean, is, isn't isn't slight problem there that um, you take so long drawing it's up the cash that, that nothing ever actually gets approved? Yeah, the, the, I think actually the challenge to get stuff done has been ridiculous in the UK, and it's been ridiculous for far, far too long. I did some work as a Treasury Minister on, on analysing the uh, procedure from an idea being started to uh, finally commencing work. And it takes longer and more money to deliver in the UK than it does in comparable countries. We need to simplify, we need to streamline. That doesn't mean to say local communities should be bypassed or ignored because Judith's point about the voice for passengers and to keep it local, I strongly support. But we should be able to do things more efficiently and get on with it. If there is a finite amount of capital, and there will always be a finite amount of capital, you need to make sure you deliver high outputs. The objective is not a process. The process is to achieve the objective. Um, I think the, the obvious thing is that the tre Treasury has put a call out looking for shovel-ready schemes. And I think we need to be realistic about what they want to see um, things moving really quickly. So. We, um, we have a lot of schemes in the pipeline and um, we're submitting them as we speak for you know, very quick turnarounds. But we need to have a, a major investment in um, safe cycle storage. I've challenged, challenged businesses as well in terms of making sure they've got the facilities um, to, um, to be, for people to be able to change when they get to work. But I think, um, I th I think um, the, the real concern and what we have to focus on immediately is this um, is the new um, sort of um, love affair with the car. I think that's deeply challenging and um, a real concern. So we've got to look at innovative ways um, that if part of the journey does have to be by car, how can we make sure that people can transfer onto more sustainable forms of uh, either public transport or active travel? Um, otherwise, we're heading for a another disaster in terms of congestion and um, pollution levels. Okay, Mag Maggie, I think you, you had something to add. Yeah, just um, two points really. One is in terms of, you know, the shovel readiness and the governance of schemes. Uh, as of four years ago, we now have double governance on rail schemes because not only do we have to navigate network rail's own internal grip process and approvals, it all goes uh, through a, a pipeline process drank up by Whitehall. Uh, so it hasn't replaced grip, it's now in addition to grip. So we get all sorts of, of interface issues where uh, projects are now, you know, I think they spend more time, frankly, going to different approval boards than they do that would actually take them to be delivered. So there's an absolute streamlining that can be done, but it's about confidence and trust of government that either uh, their processes are the only one in Network Rail can drop theirs or vice versa. Uh, anybody else, or I'll, I'll move on to the next. Oh yeah, uh, David. Yeah. So just very briefly, just to emphasise the uh, the need for a pipeline, and uh, I think this is where we can help with the sequencing of that. But it doesn't mean you can't have a balanced portfolio and pipeline. Some of the quick wins, some of the longer term. We just need to get on with sorting Manchester. Lead Sheffield, these, these big hub problems. Yes, they will take uh, many years to develop, but we can also be developing the quick quick win schemes uh, alongside those. Okay, thank you very much. Um, there was another question on HS2, uh, and, and particularly the Eastern Leg. Uh, I mean, Judith made a, 
a compelling case for it earlier. I don't know if anybody else wants to maybe explain why HS2 Eastern Leg is so important. Um, and if it is why the government, you know, plenty of people feel the government still hasn't fully committed to it in the way that it has to the Birmingham uh, leg. I saw the question, why, if the government is supporting this, uh, do we not have legislation on it? It's simply, uh, it's a hybrid bill. It is a hugely complicated thing to get a hybrid bill through. The, the capacity within Parliament is usually to do one at a time. And uh, that's why it's been done with phase one, then phase two A. Uh, we just need to recognize that things will enter the legislative process when they're ready to do so. I don't think it's an indication of a lack of commitment. My personal view is that we need HS2 to Leeds uh, as soon as possible, but it's going to take quite a while to get there. And we just have to look at the route, uh, the route debate that we have had, where it has been more uh, fractious on this part of the route than at any other part of HS2. I took the HS2 uh, phase one bill through the house. It was quite an interesting experience. Uh, because it has uh, quite a number of people who weren't that keen on it, but we got it through. We need to make sure that every people are aligned, we have clarity on where it's going to go in the North before we can get the bill ready. It's as simple as that. Judith, I think, yeah, you wanted to, uh, sorry. Yeah. yeah. You, I'm happy to come back in, Andy. Um, just to say, I think one of the things that Grant Shapps um, made clear when he first, when he came in, was that he was going to um, change the way that hybrid bills go through Parliament so that, that more than one can run together. And I think, um, you know, that's, um, that's where it's so important that on the East we get our case together. Now, I just wanted to address this issue of, of car use. Uh, versus trains and, and particularly the last mile um, that Judith mentioned and, and indeed one of our questions was about you know once you've got in your car maybe you don't get out I mean somebody put on the chat they've had their bike stolen three times from the local station which doesn't help either um, sorry I'm unmuting myself David Hogarth I think you were going to take that one on yeah yeah just to really uh, build on that I think uh, two things really um, yeah, historically, um, the North has really suffered from the higher levels of subsidy that sort of quoted back at us going into the railway. But of course, that's a function of the less railway, um, lower uh, passenger numbers, and uh, a less effective service. So, you know, we're very clear the way to ultimately reduce subsidy and make the railway more cost effective is to carry on with that investment program. That was very much the the mantra of the uh, previous Northern Trans-Pennine franchises, some of which uh, was delivered in terms of the new trains, there are other things on infrastructure that have not yet been delivered. But the way to address that in the longer term is to, uh, is to carry on with that investment. And on, on the ticketing, I think there are quite a lot of anomalies of furs. So there are some cheaper furs, some patently more expensive furs. Um, ironing that out is a core part of our ticketing strategy in the long term, but also making sure that people get the best value fur because they may not realise uh, the best way of travelling, particularly if you're not, I think, you know, I'm sure there'll be a massive move to travelling to work only a few days a week rather than five days a week. So those traditional season tickets just don't, don't work for many people. And why should you have to pick before you travel? You don't in the car. So let's 
make sure people can can get billed after the journeys um, in uh, in appropriate way. So uh, I think a, a big a big role for a better ticketing system. I just wanted, I suppose, a final question uh, to our panelists, which is that given that we're talking about strategic railways, I mean, do you do you think that in ten years' time uh, we will have a more comprehensive, more reliable, better capacity railway linking more places than we do now? uh with more electrification um and room for freight as well so uh, I'll, I'll probably go around the clock starting with judith just a brief observation and whether you're confident that will be the case um i think um i am confident that we will get the investment i, I think there is a real recognition um that investment in transport is one of the ways we're going to get through the current crisis and uh, but i think it's it's down to all of us to make sure um, that we work on an integrated model so that we get the big schemes, but we also make sure that connectivity is absolutely at the heart of um, our planning going forward. Um, we have to pick up the climate um, emergency discussions. We have to um, reduce the number of people uh, traveling by car once we get through the current health crisis. And that's, um, that's what we need to focus on. I think um, we need to also talk about a policy of affordability as well so that that people can afford to travel on um, our public transport and I think that's still very much a, a conversation that we need to have going forward. Okay uh, Maggie your turn. You're going anti-clockwise there Andy. You yeah me I am I decided to finish <laughs> up David as he's the TFN uh, Yeah I mean look I think Ten years isn't isn't that long, perhaps in some respects, but I'm absolutely confident that that rail freight will rebound. Uh, we're already back up to probably eighty percent of where we were, and there's more more trains coming on each week. And I, you know, continue to see appetite for people uh, to keep using rail freight and use more rail freight. Uh, but uh, as I said, it's a network, and it needs all parts of it to be working to drive that investment. And so I. I we want to see a pushback at the right point on messages of don't use the railways, they're unsafe, uh, to a world where we recognise that our cities and towns and economies cannot and will not work without public transport. Um, however many cycle racks and storage racks and car parks we have, we need public transport to be effective. And in rail freight that matters to us too because it's a shared network and we invest in it collaboratively and together in the right way to make capacity for growth. So I think you know we're up for doing our bit, and uh, I'm pretty confident that we will continue to prosper and thrive, and we want to see uh, that across the passenger railway as well. Thank you. Um, oh, sorry. Turn to David uh, Sidebottom. Yeah, thanks, Andy. Um, I think we'll be well on the way by then. Ten years is a, is a decent time frame. I think a lot of people across the north have long memories of where we were two years ago, and and the investment in the new trains has come through it's had some bumps along the way um but i think the ability now to do the schemes like trans pennine routes upgrade and do that in a way that rebuilds the trust and confidence that we can deliver schemes like that not just in the north but across the country as well to uh, not just provide extra um sort of quicker journeys and extra capacity but making sure that people can see these schemes delivered thank you andrew Thank you. Uh, yes, I do think this. I think that infrastructure investment is a driver of economic growth, social mobility, environmental progress, 
all the things that we need. I don't think it will necessarily look exactly the same as the points that have been made about how customers will probably be using railway in a different way. That will change ticketing uh, particularly. Uh, but we won't be able to make progress with our zero carbon objectives unless we get people back into public transport and rail will be at the heart of it and absolutely Maggie that will include rail freight. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, David if you could uh, you, you're, you're the man with the plan so 10 years time. Yeah, well, I'm glad to glad to hear the uh, the, the vote of uh, of confidence, which I think you know we would share. It's absolutely our ambition, our hope uh, that in ten years' time we've uh, we've progressed on that plan, we've supported the economic growth and uh, uh, and the jobs, and uh, uh, and we've got that uh, uh, you know subsidy level down, and we're in a much better place for for investment. I think my prediction is though that we'll still be sitting here in this sort of forum. Um, asking for more because we will have been successful and uh, uh, and will have unlocked a lot of extra demand. But uh, uh, we'll see where we are in 10 years' time. Um, and now I'm joined by my colleague here at Transport for the North, Sal Patel. Hi, Sal. Hi, yeah. How are you doing, Jeff? Um, so, Sal, I know you've still been really hard at work in the strategic rail team, but for our listeners who don't know you, just tell us um, what your role is at TFN and what you've been working on recently. Um, so I work um, as program manager within the strategic rail team um, and the strategic rail team really works um, to improve operate the operational railway uh, and works with stakeholders to make sure that it delivers for them really more. And I, I suppose that's it in a nutshell. Um, in terms of what we're really looking to do is making the case for future investment and infrastructure, both for service improvement um, as well as for infrastructure, just to make rail a lot more attractive for people very uh, important to a lot of people, a lot of challenges going on, uh, a lot of interesting work being done behind the scenes to keep rail services running. Let's let's start with the uh, the big topic, Sal, uh, literally and metaphorically, HS2, NPR. Uh, they they keep coming up, they're, they're massive infrastructure projects. What's what's the latest with, with those? Um, so I, I suppose first, I think the first thing I want to say is I thought the I thought the TFN talks was fantastic. I thought there was a really good range of uh, good range of people on the panel as well, and I thought it was really really good to get people like um, Andrew Jones uh, and uh, Judith Blake, who chaired the Blake Jones report on there as well. So I thought that was really 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 good to get them on there to really have a good discussion about that. Um, in terms of HS2 and NPR. Um, I think what's really coming out of this and what's um, what's really key with this is that we we really integrate this in uh, to be able to say, you know it's really important that we're able to to pull this together as a package of work and be able to deliver it for the north of England and not look at these two in isolation um, I think Andrew Jones said this is um, is TFN what it offers is unity and priority around this um, and he spoke about how important it was to deliver HS2 um, and I think from our point of view, uh, me being living on the east side of the country, obviously, for me, delivering the east side of HS2 is really, really important. Um, and getting that through the hybrid bill as well, you know, uh, really, really key to making sure that we, uh, we do that and deliver that as well. Um, from an NPR point of view, obviously, it's massively important to making sure that that is delivered and accelerated as much as possible as well, because we really need to, we really need to join up our key key hubs um, and really bring people closer together as well and give them give them from my point of view more choice 
really give them more choice around where it is that they want to work and really open up um, the economy in terms of providing cities more choice with people, uh, you know, with the range of people that are available for them to be able to work in those areas. Absolutely right. Um, and you referenced there about the, the Eastern leg and obviously there's been the kind of HS2 East group in the news recently saying, you know, it's not just about uh, the first phase or the first part of the second phase. You know, it's got to have that that full Y shape that, that people are always talking about. And that also came up in our board meeting as well. Um, I think it was Councillor Hans Mundry from, uh, from Warrington pointing out that, you know, it's not just... Uh, Leeds to Manchester it's got to be Liverpool to, to Manchester as well and then on from the other side from Leeds and how that connects further afield also I know our members from uh, from Lincolnshire also referenced you know the importance of actually it is a, a, a whole region strategic network and that then feeds into the importance of the integrated rail plan doesn't it which we submitted our um, evidence to last week. It is, yeah, and I mean, that that's a really good piece of work, again, that Transport for the North has done. I mean, to be honest with you, from my point of view, what's really, really important, how we demonstrate our work to government, is is really having a, a clear pipeline of projects and a long-term investment plan as well uh, to, deliver our in, to deliver our strategy. Um, I, I, and you're not just delivering a strategy, you're delivering a vision, really, more than anything else. And, and that vision is so that people have more choice and they have better connectivity as well. Um, and I, I can't remember who said this in the past or where I've read this, but we're trying to live in the 21st century now and we've still got Victorian infrastructure. I mean, it's, you know, we you wouldn't use the telephone anymore, you use your mobile phone. You know, we really need to bring that infrastructure up to the right level just to be able to provide more opportunity and the same opportunities that people potentially in other areas of the country, like the south of England, um, have here in the north of England. And that's why the things like the integrated road plan are really important. That's why making sure that we get HS2 delivered, ideally in my lifetime, which I'm sure it will be delivered in my lifetime, but to be able to deliver it in a time that I'm able to benefit from it and other people and future generations are able to benefit from it and really open up that economy of the north, I think, is, is our key job, to be fair. That's the future then. That's the, the, the big projects looking a little bit further ahead. Uh, what about in the here and now, um, as we've uh, referenced to? The world is a very different place now than we, we thought it would be. If you'd have asked us at the beginning of the year, would we be telling people not to get on the train? Then uh, nobody would have would have betted on that. That's for sure. Um, so what's happening in the in the sort of current operational rail environment to help keep passengers safe and to and to keep the railways running as they need to? I think as uh, as soon as COVID happened. Um, what was very, very clear and the clear message we got from government um, was that people should stay at home and people should stay off public transport. And I think TFN has really tried to lead the way with that. Um, very quickly, as soon as um, as soon as the lockdown started, um, TFN set up what we call the North of England Contingency Group. And that group brings together the industry, operators, network rail, our stakeholders and members, so representatives from, the, from all those organisations, and it's coordinated by us um, as, a, as a group. And we meet weekly, virtually obviously, for an hour. Uh, and it's an opportunity where stakeholders are able to give feedback from their areas in terms of how, um, the people that need to move, uh, and feedback in terms of uh, where key workers need to go um, and that kind of information. And it also provides an opportunity for operators and network rails to provide feedback in advance of things happening, things like future timetable changes that are going to be coming up, um, where they might need some support in terms of understanding where key worker flows need to be 
rounds up NHS workers, supermarket workers, people really needed public transport, still needed to move at the end of the day. And we've been able to get that feedback as part of the group. Now, going forward, that, that North Korean contingency group still sits, and that is really looking at future challenges. Really, So the last two have really focused on key areas. The last one talked about face coverings, and there was a really, really good discussion between operators and stakeholders around what face covering means and how that's going to be managed as well, and how local areas can support with that. Um, the week before that, we talked around the timetable change, which is happening in July. Uh, we've got another step up in timetables happening uh, uh, in the first or second week of July. And it's really an opportunity for the operators to talk around the areas that they're looking um, at increasing in terms of service um, and the challenges that they're facing around that in terms of resources um, and the support that they might need from local, uh, from local areas. But it also gives them the opportunity to explain anything like, for example, the reason why they might not be able to do something and really have a grown-up discussion around that. And I think that forum's been fantastic and really well received, not just by people in the North, but by DFT and by government as well, because it's not really being done anywhere. It's not replicated anywhere else. And at the heart of all this um, is, is passenger confidence and passenger safety, isn't it? And that, that's come out of the Blake Jones review, it comes out at every stage of continuing work in terms of, you know, timetable updates. And we know about the disruption caused by timetable changes a couple of years ago. So how do we continue to ensure that passengers are at the, are at the forefront of, of what's happening in the rail industry? So I think there's two things here. I mean, firstly, I mean, you've already talked about Blake Jones and around the, the passenger promise. And the, the passenger promise is really the operator's promise to passengers in terms of um, in terms of the service quality they're going to receive, in terms of the level of performance. And it also, what else feeds into that is around safety as well. Um, and I think the first thing that we've got to do is try to build confidence in people coming back onto the railway when the time is right. Obviously, the time isn't right at the moment right now. But when that time does come again, we need to understand how it is that we, we, we build that confidence. And I think that's really working together, not just industry, but also with government as well. We need the government to get around the table as well to understand how we give people confidence to come back onto rail when, the, uh, when that time is right. But also because we don't want to lose that fantastic growth we've had over the last two decades as well. You know, a lot of that growth has really driven um, the infrastructure need. And we don't want that to go away. And you know, we have we've heard that it can take a year. It could take a year or two to come back. What we really want to do is build that confidence, make people feel safe, uh, get them to really. I mean, we need to understand what social distancing is going to mean. And I think that guidance is starting to come through. But any changes around that, we need to be able to build that into whatever thinking comes into the next stage of this to really to make people make passengers feel at, feel at ease because for them getting into their car is getting the, getting into their own little bubble it means that they're away from other people at the end of the day we need them to have that same level of confidence when they come onto the station foyer areas when they're coming onto the onto, onto trains as well um and we need to work our way through that and it's not something that we can do by ourselves it's something that's going to have to be done collaboratively with the industry as well as with government as well and you referenced there how people um, are being encouraged to, to travel by car and actually avoid public transport as much as they can. Um, we know that, um, you know, people will feel safer, as you mentioned, in the, in the sort of their own car bubble. How do we sort of balance that potential increase in road use, potential where there's, you know, 
a single person per car doing fairly short journeys. How do we balance that with the need to decarbonize the, the wider rail network? And, and how do we get from that back into uh, more sustainable travel behaviors where people are coming back to the railways and public transport? So I think there's a few things. I think in the, in the short term, um, where people are being encouraged to use their cars at the moment right now. We've really seen a big increase in the use of freight traffic, um, and that's taken a huge amount of lorries off the road already. And I think that's something that we really, really don't want to lose. So um, where possible, we want to remove as much freight off the road network so that freight can use it. Because, I mean, I can't remember the numbers, but I think it's something like this. 70, it's 75% more efficient or something like that to use to use a freight train compared to, compared to using a, a wagon or a truck. Um, so I think we really want to see that push continue. But that needs infrastructure changes as well. While freight has got some priority at the network on the network as a result of COVID at the moment right now, we need to make sure that in the future that infrastructure is there so that the freight network has an attractive opportunity to continue moving from east to west and from west to east, to be fair. Um, so, um, so I think for me, that's the first stage of this. Um, secondly, we really need to be pushing for more electrification. And we've really, really shown, uh, I think we've really got used to having really, really good air over the last two or three months. And we want to maintain that as well. And we've become accustomed to it. And I, I for one, really don't want to lose that. So I think that for us makes the case, not just for electrification, but a real push towards things like cleaner vehicles, uh, more charging points, that kind of stuff, whether that might be through scrappage schemes or whatever it might be for um, for um, more more. Dirtier cars, I'd say, uh, but um, you know something like that. You know, but we we really need to see that kind of push happening because we are going to get an increase in vehicles on the road in the short term at least. Um, we need to make sure that the, to balance that off, we are trying to either increase freight or in you know see more car shares if that's safe to do so. Obviously, um, but we know we just need to make sure that we we do find that right balance on the road network. So we started off, we spoke about the uh, quite far ahead in the future, the really big infrastructure projects. We've discussed the here and now with getting people to feel um, safe when they do have to travel by, by train when it's absolutely necessary. What's, what's going on in the, in the medium term? So the sort of next few months in strategic rail and, and how do you plan for, for an unknown easing of lockdown? I think it's really difficult to do, but I think you know, what you try to do is focus on the things that are known about. Um, so uh, there's a big piece of work at the moment right now within strategic plan on what, what an economic recovery plan would look like um, in terms of once we start getting out of COVID, how are people's behaviours going to change, but also how do we start instigating the, the economy start moving uh, moving ahead uh, and that's done by um, a number of things so firstly what um, what projects have um, have we or our, our members have got on the shelf at the moment right now that would that can get going straight away in terms of yeah, in terms of getting them um, construction going in terms of getting um, in terms of getting um, other areas of the economy moving and getting people who potentially might lose their jobs as a result of this um, into new sectors as well and um, so there's a really big piece of work going on around that. So, for example, I mean, we're, we're looking at things that are simple, I'd say, to do. So things like um, platform extensions and that kind of stuff. Quite simple civils work where potentially we know that we might have a capacity challenge in the future, for example, on the Bolton Corridor. Um, could we, where we might have planned to do that work in five years' time, could we bring that work forward instead and really start, you know, start... Uh, 
start um, pushing the construction industry um, to deliver some of those things. And I think we'll, if we get a big enough package of work or packages of work and convince government that, that is the right way to go, um, what we could end up with is, is in the short to medium term is, is, a, is a stream um, and, a, and, a, and a program of works, to be, to be fair, which uh, we, could, we, we would look at delivering over the next uh, five years at least. And what that really does is really starts, starts getting the economy moving again. Um, and I think that's where we're driving towards as an organisation. We hold a lot of data and we're probably one of the only only organisations in the country that has got the level of detail um, around um, economic benefit um, compared to anywhere else, um, essentially within London or anywhere else. To be honest with you. And I think we really need to use that data to drive how we how we use that to, to look at what can we do to get ourselves out of this and uh, really improve, you know, really get the north moving again. I'm glad you mentioned uh, economic recovery plan there because that was one of the items on our board meeting just last week. Uh, Transport for the North has has pulled together a, a economic recovery plan for the North, a, a northern infrastructure pipeline of, of rail schemes, of road schemes, which as Sal says could be brought forward uh, really quite quickly. Some of them are uh, shovel ready to coin a, an overused phrase, you know, and, and could really get going quite quickly and, and bring forward some of that, that recovery support, get sectors such as construction moving and make sure that that when we are in a place where more and more people can start to use the, the roads and the, and the railways again, that actually the infrastructure is there and it, it's ready for them. And we don't find ourselves going backwards to a situation where uh, we've got all the, the disruption that we've faced previously. So um, do go back and have a have a look at our board meeting. Like I said, you'll find the recording on our on our website and stay tuned for more on economic recovery plan as well, because We'll be writing to the Secretary of State outlining our proposals um, and you'll be able to read all about that on our social media channels and on our website as well. Thanks for listening to our TFN podcast. Stay in touch. We are on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on LinkedIn. We're also now on Instagram. So look up Transport for the North on your favourite social media channel got the main website as well transportforthenorth.com you can find out about all our programs sign up to our newsletter as well that's another thing that we're going to be using to keep you guys in touch as well as this podcast and as well as our online channels thanks ever so much for listening and we'll see you again soon thanks for listening to the transport for the north podcast don't forget you can subscribe on spotify and soundcloud so you never miss an episode you can find us on twitter linkedin and facebook for all our latest updates And join us on our website where you can find all the latest news and sign up to our All Points North newsletter.